0: Hi everyone, I'm Pete Smith, Director for the Centre for Disability Employment Research and Practice. And in today's podcast, we have a special guest all the way from London. Uh, our guest today will be Tamsin Kodas. Uh, Tamsin is the co-founder of Respond, uh, which started in 1991. And Respond is a, a counselling service that works with people with intellectual and and disability, as we refer to it here. Um, it has a long history. Uh, Tamsin retired from in 2016, Um, clearly after that many years of counselling, you'd get a little bit tired. But this will be an interesting podcast for us today um, in that we now have counselling as part of the NDIS uh, funding process and, of course, they've just introduced the idea of psychosocial uh, recovery coaching into uh, the NDIS plans as well. So we now start to see something that's been missing for quite some time. Um, out of um, the NDIS, and that is counselling for people. Now, we can use the counselling process clearly in the employment setting because one of the things that that often leads to people with disability losing their employment uh, it happens in the post-placement area, and that's where they don't have the support they need. Um, and often that support, that absence of support, creates the anxieties, the sort of things that lead to behaviours that, generally find people, well, unemployed very quickly. And this is an interesting thing to look at it from this perspective, because one of the things that we find in our work, and particularly when we're working with consultants, is they need counselling as well. They need it in the workplace so that they can give themselves permission to do their job the way they want to. So hopefully Tamson will be here shortly, and you won't have to listen to me talking uh, to myself and potentially going around in circles with my conversation. So not too long now, and um, Tamson should be here. So let me read a little bit more about what they do and respond because they I've followed this organisation for for quite a few years and they've got a really good story. Uh, and looks like Tamson's just entering the studio now, so we won't have to listen to me waffling on for much longer this will be a topical subject and i hope you you'll you enjoy this one tonight i have certainly been looking forward to this one um and in a second one we'll be able to hand over to tamson and let her do the talking so any tick of the clock now so as you can see um, responders oh um, looks like system says that tamson is online and any second hour it'll flash up that she's available so, not too long now Why don't I go back to the, um, yes, my response page. Um, It's really quite interesting because it says it's a national charity that provides uh, therapeutic and support services of people with learning disabilities, autism, or both, who have experienced abuse, violence, or trauma. Um, And here's Tamson. Tamson, welcome. I can't hear you, Tamson. Hello. Okay, Tamsyn hasn't entered the studio. Um, I have no, can't hear any voice from her at the moment. Hopefully, whatever that problem is will rectify itself. Sooner than later.
1: Is that it? Can you hear me now?
0: I can hear you now.
1: Brilliant. Right. Yeah, Fine. I'm sorry about that. It took me a little uh, while to work that, my way around the interface, but I'm here. Good, good to
0: hear brilliant. you. Brilliant. Absolutely. It's lovely to have you here. People don't have to listen to me now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You've done well. we have done very well. I could hear you, but I just wasn't pressing the vital button to get my... Ah, uh, anyway, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> we love how technology works, and it's supposed yeah, to be yeah. simple, but, but it just doesn't seem to be. So anyway, you're here. So Yes. Tell, tell people about respond tell us about respond and what drove you to start a, a co-found an organization like that
1: uh, well I've been working with um, me and my co-founders had been working with adults with uh, in the UK we would say learning learning disabilities for some time in education and in the self-advocacy movement a very long time ago now in the 1980s um, and so obviously I spent a lot of time with people. And heard about their lives and talked to lots of people and um, in the course of doing that discovered that uh, quite a few people with learned disabilities that I knew and and uh, was involved in supporting had had pretty bad things happen to them often when they lived in institutions and uh, they didn't have anywhere really to talk about it and a lot of the people who were supporting them their staff and 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 the workers involved they didn't they knew and they wanted to help and they didn't really know how to help if somebody had experienced abuse of of different kinds and I think we were all just beginning as 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 sort of workers or volunteers at that time to just really get um, our heads around the idea of equal rights and equal people uh, and people first started up then in Europe um, so I had done a counseling course and I really liked talking to people and myself and my co-worker thought we should set something up where people could come and talk about difficult things so I guess we called it counseling then and um, we wanted to run support and training for staff as well because we just felt very strongly that uh, good workers were allies for the people we were supporting and and um, and needed you know needed, positive encouragement to, to, to be as uh, emotionally sensitive as they could to, uh, to the people they were supporting. So that's what Response set up to do, to provide counselling to people with learning disabilities and support and training for their carers. Uh, and that was in the early 90s. And it since then has grown and continued and developed so that um, we started to work uh, with younger people at the turn of the century. And that's been, that was a very, the early 2000s, that was a very exciting development. And the schools project developed and uh, the the therapy just grew. And I suppose one of the things that I realised as quite an inexperienced counsellor at that point was that the therapy that that was on offer in the world, in in the UK to people, wasn't really uh, suitable or accessible to people with learning disabilities for a variety of reasons. And this just seemed all wrong. It seemed all wrong from an equality point of view, and it seemed all wrong from a mental health point of view. Uh, Too often, people's learning disabilities were seen as the difficulty, where in fact they may have experienced horrible things or losses or struggles of identity and development, and um, there was nowhere like you or I would have to go. Uh, So we wanted the, the therapy that they had increasingly to be really good and good quality and connected to... A lot of what we understood about therapy and how it helped. And so I became, and my co workers became very keen in developing really high quality therapy, which involved a lot more training for ourselves, obviously, um, and just really thinking about it, really thinking about how it helped, how people could make use of it, and what approaches helped, and that was the work of Respond.
0: It's interesting you say that. Now, I I can recall when when I started working in disability uh, as a direct support worker, and I was studying counselling and psychology at the time, And generally, it was accepted in the in the service provision area that, that we didn't do that sort of thing with, with clients with learning disabilities. Yeah. Um, and I actually started doing it, but I but I got permission, and I was told you have to do this very quietly on the side and tell mm. no one. Mm. And it it almost it was though that the idea or the concept that that you could actually do counseling with someone with a learning disability in their setting, whether it be at home or the workplace, was like, well, no, we don't do that because we don't we don't know how to, or they won't understand it. Or it was as though we'd actually decided that they were people with learning disabilities were less than human and didn't need Mm -hmm. the same supports that Mm -hmm. we needed. And 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 it it seems to me that I'm not sure that we progressed very far.
1: Well, I, yeah, I've been through, I mean, you know, it's a long time since then now, isn't it? It's 30 years. Um, I, I think that uh, things have moved on. There has, there have been developments and I, um, but unfortunately, mental health here in the UK, mental health services are under a huge strain and not good enough for anybody. So there's an equality there. They're not good enough for people to learn this, they're not good enough for anybody. And I think that has set back a lot of what we wanted to do, which for some of the time we did have some, you know, I really did feel we were making progress in as much as we began to influence um, trainings for other therapists. That was a big step forward when we started to get in, asked to teach on training programs for the sort of recognized psychotherapy training bodies and just generally to increase the recognition when we um, rent out to visit schools and social work teams to just say the emotional lives of the people you're working with really matter. It really matters. The things that have happened will affect them. And the way you respond to those difficult experiences will really help how they manage themselves and feel better and um, understand their own emotions better. So I've always been really committed (laughs) to trying to, decent to decomplexify psychotherapy and say yes it, it's really a complicated thing but it's not that complicated to to draw on and and put into practice in your direct dealings with people so that's my right. kind of mission uh, and i so, so sorry i was no, going to no. say even if you can't access it in clinics if we can affect the way that um workers relate to people then that's a huge step along the way
0: I, I think it's interesting because so I can recall conversations uh, many years ago um, when I was working in the field uh, where people, particularly uh, mental health professionals, were wedded to a particular approach to therapy. And okay. if the client didn't respond to that, they would just go, Well, you know, this person doesn't understand. There's no, we're just wasting our time, mm-hmm. which which was always the antithesis of how it worked for me because I, you know, I was lucky I was influenced by people like Emmy Dursen and people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, trained by them. So I was kind of lucky and came from a different viewpoint. And I, and I think that maybe what we're missing is the concept that as, as as unique as people are, we actually have to give them a unique approach as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and, and it, it to me, it, it seems that one of the failings or one of the things we don't do often enough is we don't go, what are the, the therapeutic methods that would work for this cohort of people or the people in this setting. Yes. Um, we don't still still see a lot of that yet, but I think that, to me, is a valid way of, of working with people with learning disabilities. Uh,
1: yes, for sure. I mean, I, th- I, it, I, mean, I think I it really helps. Obviously, you need to have some training yourself. You need to know what it is you're doing and you need to have an understanding of how what you're doing helps and what, why it does. But in terms of... Um, how you put that into practice you meet a person you're interested to know who they are how they feel how they react what matters to them how they relate uh, what their experiences of authority have been um, what their childhood experiences have been and if you if you bother and take the time and try to find those things out which is often not straightforward with someone Whose um, communication may be unusual or idiosyncratic, but it's possible to do. Often by talking to other people who know them too, then you 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 get to know a person, and then you apply the understanding that you have about therapeutic approaches and how they help to that to your dealings with that person, to your communications with that person. Uh, right. So it's always about the individual person to start with, for sure.
0: Yeah, and and that's quite interesting. I mean, because clearly, obviously, that's what counselling is. It's it's a one-on-one situation, and it's yes. all, all always about the individual. And and I've found over the years that that working with people with learning disabilities, particularly around issues that relate to to anger and things like that type of um, a situation, yes. often there's this this thing, what we miss is that. As part of the process, we need to recognise that potentially the person doesn't want to take ownership of that anger and sometimes you've got to w- work with them as and place that anger in a third party so that mm-hmm. you can have a discussion with them, so to speak, where well, we talk about that angry person over there and the impact mm-hmm. they're having. Uh, I've often found over the years that by by placing the problem in a third party,
1: mm-hmm. you get
0: very good results.
1: Yes, I think there is um, generally as a as a as a therapeutic practitioner, because I now work with um, with children um, where they have the gift of play very often. So what you're saying there is working in metaphor or working with, um, as you say, a third, not a direct. It's you. It's me. You do this. And this causes that to happen can be too much for people. So you put a distance Uh, there which makes it much less uh, intense and much less uh, potentially feel like the person thinks they're in trouble and you can make more progress I think what I would say is the state of mind that a very angry person has who knows that what they're doing is ticking other people off and they're very disturbed inside their own head that is not the state of mind that is going to be able to stop and think and say well I did this because of that and I realize it's because of you know, this big trigger that doesn't happen because when you're really worked up, you don't think straight. So the key is to is to get the thinking straight. And very often a kind of way of diffusing the situation is the way to do that. And the way of thinking about it, which doesn't re-stimulate those angry feelings, which often happens if you're telling somebody off or they feel you're telling them off, is to create a third an object or another imaginary person or a game or something like that.
0: Right, I, I have a question in front of you from Lauren, and, oh. and she's she's asking, "Are you finding that families are more involved in the treatment processes these days?"
1: Um, well, certainly, it respond to begin with. I don't think we really thought about families that much, but um, I certainly working with children for sure. I um, I think that working with the other significant pe- working as part along, I would describe it as working alongside. Other people who are concerned about the person that you're providing therapy to, because that's when therapy works best. If you're any, you, you know, if you're me and you're going into therapy, and I'm going to therapy, and my family think it's a terrible idea, and I can't mention that I do it, and they snipe about the money, therapy is going to be harder. It's better to have people alongside. So often that's family members, and sometimes it's key members of staff. So I think that in and I think that is part of the work and what makes it different often from working with um, a non-learning disabled or non-vulnerable adult who comes in under their own steam and isn't dependent on lots of other people for making their life tick so we learn to respond quite often we learn the hard way that it's just much better to work alongside people if you can and that's where explaining what you're doing and why and being able to do that in a in an empathetic and um, encouraging way is so important because it's it can be a strange thing and um, people can feel worried about it so yes it obviously raises lots of questions about confidentiality (laughs) and privacy which presumably we'll come on to
0: (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, and why don't we go there right now? Because okay. because you know clearly one of the things you know when you start out you're you're taught you know privacy confidentiality. Uh, yes. The client is the client, and the family are, are not a part yeah. of it. And and yeah. you know when I was when I was working in employment services as a therapist, it was always a case of. You can talk to the individual, but you can't talk to their family. It's like the family or the guardian, and that's the reason they're here. And without them, we can't. And the therapist would just go flat out. We're not talking to the families. We're not telling them anything, which to me is counterproductive.
1: Yeah, I have to say, if you'd asked me back in 1993, I'd have said, of course, everybody must have total confidentiality. But as I say, it, learning by experience and certainly the good practice in relation to children and young people here now, that's not how it works. So, uh, but do the, the, the I think of managing that sort of essential, um, <laughs> what's the word for it? I don't I, know I, what would be the word. It it's like a dance really um about about i suppose how i see it is the number one person is the client that never changes they are your client and what is right for them is the right thing and working out what that is isn't always straightforward but that's the job of the therapist and often the right thing for the client is to work cooperatively with the other people that care about them and having an experience of a number of people who have your best interests in heart at heart and can communicate well, that is a good thing. And it's very difficult to achieve sometimes. And often families have had years of really terrible experiences of getting support and feeling misunderstood and feeling blamed and judged. And um, that has all got to be part of your picture. And you as a therapist, you're in a role to, you're in a position to understand that and try and take a different view. In terms of confidentiality, I don't know what the law in Australia is, but here it's quite clear now, uh, certainly since we've campaigned very hard for better protection from abuse for adults with learning disabilities. And there was a big change in the law uh, in the early 2004, 2005. And so now um, people with learning disabilities have the status of vulnerable adults. And that means that the safeguarding laws apply to them as well as to children. So if you think someone is at risk of serious harm or of harming someone else, then you're not, you don't keep that to yourself. And that is out there on the table to start with. So that makes a difference
0: we're likely to see some changes here yeah. over, over the next yeah. few years because we currently have a yeah. Royal Commission into Abuse of right. um, People with Disabilities. So mm-hmm. no doubt these sort of things will pop mm-hmm. up in there. But yeah. it, it, it's interesting that one of the things that used to happen, and I, I hope it does, still doesn't happen, but I couldn't be certain, is mm-hmm. that... Often for someone with a learning disability, if they they had some sort of an outburst where it might have impacted on a support worker or someone Mm. in society, what would happen was that without even talking to the individual, the the state guardian or disability office psychologist would send a behaviour plan, a behaviour management plan about interviewing them, which seemed to indicate that that what you wanted and how you thought were relevant to the plans the mental yes. health plans that were being developed, and that was a common part of it. And and that to me, that's the antithesis of what you should be doing. Yeah. And um, it's
1: not, I mean, I can talk you through what how we would uh, how we would actually do this, if you like. Which is oh, absolutely. Um, you're very clear right from the start with everybody about the. The privacy as opposed to confidentiality. So everybody knows there isn't total confidentiality and everybody knows that that's a safeguard that's in place. There aren't going to be dangerous secrets held between the therapist and the client. Um, so that's clear from the start. If something happens that you feel you need to take outside the room, then the, the, the pr- protocol is that you try, if at all possible, to say to the person you're talking to, I am going to have to tell someone about this. And that can be very painful and very difficult. And you might not realize it at the time. You might have to go away and think about it and have supervision or talk with your colleagues. And then still, the, the practice is, if it's at all possible, you say to the person that's what you're going to do. And you say it with a recognition of how hard that might be. But you say you have to do it. Um, and if you can't do that, you know, it's a terrible thing. Every time you have to do it, it's a terrible thing, but you have to do it. So in terms of training and supporting and being a supervisor now, it's a massive part of my work. You know, people hear things and they think, what do I do with this? Where does this fit? And it's tricky and it needs sharing. It's not a decision for one person and you need a framework to help you make those decisions. So those are the the, the, the safeguarding or the child, depending on who you're working with, you know, the child protection procedures. But there's another much more subtle process of sharing what's happening without breaking privacy. So um, you would, we would expect, we did expect and continue to, to expect to have an ongoing contact with the other people in the client's life. And to, in an ongoing way, feedback to some extent what's going on, right. and sometimes to have regular meetings, uh, and then the business of explaining what's happening or um, sharing how you think the therapy is helping—that's that's a skill you you learn to be able to talk about it without betraying confidences.
0: Right. There's a lot of parallels there with the employment mm. processes that we use in okay. that. In that okay. the work we do uh, with, uh, with people learning with disabilities around employment, it, we actually start in the person's home mm. and we work with their family and engage the family, those significant people in their life, as, and, and get them to be part of the journey. Uh, and that, that helps the client, but I think that it also does that we found one of the reasons a lot of people don't end up with employment is that is that the families are not sure. They're not sure if yeah. the child will be safe in this context yeah. and properly supported. So there's a, a degree of self-sabotage from the family going on. So mm-hmm. I, I see the parallel between the therapeutic alliance and also the employment alliance with the family and, and the benefits that come out of that. Uh, when you start to look at these sort of things and, and engaging with the family, would you think that sometimes the family are almost in therapy with you as well?
1: Um, It it can feel that way. I suppose I'd have to go back to what I think therapy does and how it helps. And I think the the key element, really, I mean, it's all about a relationship. That's how the change happens. And it's a relationship from the therapist's point of view that is characterised by what I would describe as relentless empathy So it doesn't always mean being nice. It just means being relentlessly empathetic. And uh, that's what you're drawing on and that's what you need. And you need to keep your own tank of empathy um, well-charged through your own supervision and your, you know, self-care and uh, colleagues and all, and CDP, uh, CPD. And I think that's the same with families. I think that I, I have... You know, basically, everybody has a story. Every family has a story. And you need, as a therapist, to have this capacity to think, how does it feel to be you? And I do that for families, just as I do it for the young person. And I do it for families, not because I want to be their therapist, but because, as I said before, the client is my number one concern. And if I can alter, because the experience of, of, of receiving empathy and I think often generally I try to be kind as a as a you know as, as a sort of action, if that makes sense. That's often very different and quite tra- can potentially be transformative. And so I try and apply that to my dealings um, with people. Uh, I mean it, I, it's not that I'm pretending, I mean it. It's a kind of um, space that I try and inhabit. And if I can do that for parents, then their feelings about things change. And that can really change the way they relate to their child or grown up child, um, depending on the circumstances. And that has been my experience. So that's what I try to do. I think often a lot of problems are, uh, I mean, this is talking very therapeutically, and I hope I, I don't know if this is what your listenership wants or if they're more interested in practicalities, but um, I think they'd like
0: a bit of everything.
1: <laughs> okay, all right. So, because uh, you have to shut me up if it's way off being, but um,
0: that's all right. I, people are people used to listening to me and they know I sort of want to, so by all means, wander.
1: <laughs> so, yes, this sort of relational way of being can be quite. Um, can be quite profound for people who haven't felt understood or have very often felt left on their own to cope with the situation that doesn't seem to be, you know, nobody seems to care. And uh, I don't think that's an imagined thing. It's certainly not the families I've worked with over here in the UK. So uh, I can't, you know, none, no individual can wave a magic wand and make it OK. But just witnessing somebody's reality is a very, very profound and important thing to do. So I suppose if I would say anything, I would say that your job as a therapist is not to solve a problem. It's to really get and communicate that you get how that person is feeling and that you're interested in helping that to change if that's what they want. And you, you feel as a therapist that something about therapy could help bring about that change. Uh, and I think that's true for families too. And um, so if a family is very frightened and anxious and suspicious that the world you know, will not be kind to their young person, that's probably based on very good evidence and experience. And they don't need telling that that's not the case. They need. Right. It's more helpful to say that is really dreadful and I really appreciate how awful it is. To feel that and how terrible that you had to watch your son or daughter go through these things and if you're in a position to reassure about particular things in place you can do that but it's more important to recognize the feeling right you know? and then there'll be more they'll feel better about working okay. with
0: you <laughs> let's 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 take a different approach and let's talk about the different types of therapeutic approaches you've seen over the okay. years being applied
1: okay. And
0: I'm not asking you to say, hey, this one's better than that one. Right. But often I get, I get asked by, particularly when I used to lecture in, in psychology, a common question from students would be, which method do I use?
1: Right,
0: yeah. Um, and, and which is a bit of a piece of string thing. So mm. can you share your piece of string on that subject?
1: <laughs> oh, goodness <laughs> me. We don't have the necessary two years, you know.
0: Um. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, let's, let's take 20 minutes and see how many we can I suppose uh,
1: my experience has been that for people with learning disabilities, approaches that rely on good understanding and ready access to very um, secure thinking processes are often tricky for people. Uh, and that's partly because there may be cognitive um, difficulties. And it's also because I said before, if you're in a very emotionally aroused state, you don't get good access to the thinking parts of your brain which are at the front so you have to be able to reliably access those to make very good use of cognitive methods so although i might i think some things about te- helping people recognize how they can calm themselves down and what they do that's good but basically i've not had a lot of experience of relying on the on a kind of um, that is the main main way in. That's not to say that people can't be helped by learning to count to ten or have a place to go to if they think they're going to explode and things like that, but I think that's that's not really the job of therapy. You might support those approaches in a home. My own approach is relational, so it's how how um I think relationships are what matter, I think relationships are how we become who we are. I think the quality of our relationships has a huge impact on how we can move confidently and effectively and to be our best selves through the world. So I'm thinking about the therapeutic relationship more than anything else. I'm also thinking about how difficulties in relationships may have led to some of the difficulties that people have, particularly their attachment relationships. So I'm very much, I think attachment theory is very helpful. I think it's very accessible. I think to think, well, if somebody had, this particular experience when they were small, that might've affected how they relate to people going forward. And that helps me understand why, for example, they don't trust me to be helpful. So one of the key challenges for a therapist is to not assume that, because you're a nice, kind, helpful person who wants to be helpful, that the person (laughs) in the room will feel that you are, because their life experience may make them think, well, why would that be the case? Right. that's where attachment theory is
0: helpful. That's interesting because you know, we, we, we keep circling back to relationship as the, as the key mm. ingredient and mm-hmm. and certainly in my thesis work, one of the one of the factors or the primary factor that drives successful employment outcomes for people with learning disabilities is relationships underpinned by trust.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so I think the thing is don't assume that your client is going to trust you. You have to work in a way which means they Can they come to know that they can trust you, and that you do get them, and that you do have their interests in heart at heart? And one of the challenges in for therapy with people with learning disabilities, and it's also true for working with children who don't have learning disabilities, is a lot of the time what you're doing doesn't necessarily feel like therapy. Um, You know, you might be, it might feel like having a chat, but it's how you're having that chat and how you're paying attention and what you're taking in and how you're reflecting things back and what you're listening out for. So a chat about, you know, so your person comes in, they sit down, this is an adult with a learned disability, they tell you about a day trip they had with their family and they describe the ups and the downs of that day trip. Now, that could feel like a chat, but if you listen with a relational perspective and with an attachment informed perspective to that and they're describing about the other people who were there on that trip, you will find out about how particular people make them feel or particularly uh, particular difficulties or glitches they encountered on that day. And so you are listening as if it was a chat, but you're listening with those thoughts in your head and not worrying that this appears to be a, day, a conversation about a picnic um, because that doesn't matter because it's how you're taking that information in and what you're doing with it that matters.
0: Right. The, the, the picnic really is just a, a vehicle. to to allow the conversation to happen. Yeah. I've had another question posed for you. um, Go on. And and it is, uh, what approach would you take to encourage self-determination in your clients? Oh, um,
1: listening. (laughs) (laughs) Listening, not contradicting, not cutting across the feeling, Um, really saying, uh, I get how that felt. I'm really, that's really wrong that happened to you. I'll, I'll, when I'll say things like, you know, that sounds really hard, what would you have liked to have happened there instead? If that happened again, what do you think you might do another time? Not in a testing way, but in a like, wow, and if, if you were to get in that situation again, what do you think you would do? So that you're always, 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 you know, you believe this person can, you know, they're in charge of their own life, basically. And you um, you you respond in a way which encourages that. But I think the main thing I suppose underneath all that, and this is again very back to sort of basic therapy, is that your job as a therapist is to is to help that person feel better about themselves, and that's the key to self determination. That you say what you want because you feel you 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 should have it. That's what most of us do. It's self esteem that fires that you know. Don't you do this to me because I'm better than that? And you get that from self esteem. And the way you get self esteem is to feel that you are a enjoyed. Uh, an enjoyed person, a valued person, a person that people are glad that they're they're glad to have you around. Um, And they're pleased you're in the world. Now, for a lot of people with learning disabilities, they're, you know, we know a lot more about privilege. They're a long way behind the starting line in that experience emotionally. For all kinds of reasons that are to do with how society is organised and capitalism and what's valuable and what isn't and what lives are worth things, so I feel very strongly about this stuff. BD. you might have to shut me up, but um,
0: no, <laughs> but I'm I'm on the same <laughs> page with you. So go for your life.
1: Okay. So as a therapist, you know you're only one person. You, you obviously, you know you're not going to change. You're not going to bring about a revolution. But as a therapist, you can really make it your job. For that person to feel that you are genuinely, authentically pleased to see them and glad they're there and happy that you know them and interested to know more. And you don't have to make that up because it's your job to find the person that makes you feel that way through the relationship. And uh, I often quote a poem which uh, by... Uh, a, a, a poet here, a guy called Lem Sisay, I don't know if he's known in Australia, but he has his own experiences of care and trauma. He wrote a poem called, it was about a mother and a baby, and it was called, the strap line for the poem was, every mother wants a baby like you. And it described how a new mother, in the best circumstances, feels when they look at their baby. This is the best baby in the world. Now, something about that feeling crystallized. Every therapist wants a client like you. So I am trying to get to that place through getting to know my client and finding the most likable, enjoyable parts of them. Now, that's like a podium speech. I realize that. And I don't want to sound like that. But I really feel this so strongly. And it's really and it's not easy to do. And you don't you can't pretend. But it's possible. And if you do that, then people have that feeling that they are enjoyed and their self-confidence grows and they're much more likely to stand up for what they want in the outside
0: world. Right I I think you've given a really interesting clue to the workplace setting where one of the things we try to do is create a natural support that that person that becomes the person they trust they go to that will will support them in the workplace whether it be a co-worker or a supervisor and it seems to me that Part of the process of of building a natural support would be around creating that capacity to to do those things that we're trying to do in therapy, but not so much as a therapy, but as as that support person who who makes them feel valued and and an important part of the workplace. That seems to be more equally as important as teaching someone the workplace skills.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, because if you think you are making somebody think, oh, God, here they come again, then right. you're going to be on the back foot, aren't you, before you start. So the supporters in the workplace, they that's they need there. Yeah, it's encouragement. And it's the same. It's not this is not to infantilize anyone. But um, basically, as a as a parent, you get further if you say nice things. It costs nothing. It costs nothing to appreciate someone. It costs nothing. If you somebody does something and you like it, say so. I would say that like for people just out there, just say so. Don't make up something you like if you didn't like it. But if there is something you like, say so. It was, hey, I really enjoyed chatting with you about the football today. If you did, say it. You, you just can't do enough of this stuff. As long as you mean it and it's not done in a patronizing way.
0: Right, and this circles back to the notions of self-esteem, and self-determination, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all of these factors that make someone confident in a workplace, exactly. or in, in, in any setting for that matter.
1: Absolutely, Any setting, any person. I mean, this is what I'd like to say is that we all need this. Every human being likes to feel part of something. They like to feel that people are pleased they're there. Um, if they do something good and somebody says so, that feels great. Uh, we want to feel those things. And then we think, yeah, it's good that I'm here. And uh, yeah, this is good. I feel all right about myself. Now, that's a human thing. It's just that if you have a learning disability and maybe, you know, you've really struggled to feel successful, that's going to be very hard. So you need to make an extra effort. But that's not making it up. That's not giving the past to behavior that's really unhelpful. It's doing it in a way which continues this underlying... Bedrock of appreciation, respect, and value. And if you can't feel those things, then you're not a good person to be a supporter. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what you need to cultivate in a workforce to support colleagues who have. uh, Yeah,
0: but but it's really interesting that, you know, we're hearing these things and we know these things, and these are uh, the things that every human expects as a normal part of their existence. And yet, When it comes to someone with a learning disability, often people sort of step back and go, oh, yeah. I'm not really sure about that. Yeah. It's yeah. And, it, and it's it's interesting because we work with large organisations. One of the oh, things yeah. I commonly hear is that we're afraid and we don't know how to work with them. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I I still have don't have an, uh, an answer that you're too far away from smacking him yeah. in the head uh, right. often, but it just... It 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 seems to defy description that when it comes to someone with a learning disability, yeah. we hold them at arm's length because we're not sure. And yet, this is just another person.
1: Yes, and I I I mean, obviously, the main way to that that gets challenged, as with every sort of discrimination and fear of the other, is through actual lived experience. So you know, um, if I was meeting a group of people I'd never trained before, I would start by just, and I'm sure you would do the same, Peter, you know, what's been your experience? Who do you know, you know, in, in your life, what's what's been your experience of, of learning disability, of people with learning disabilities? And, and people will have it. And it's good to start talking about it because that's an excellent starting point for getting the, the main concerns out. And then there'll be people in the group who have really... You know different lived experiences, which then contribute to the to the group um, the group considerations. And uh, you know, because often anything that has a hint of a sort of othering in it is is driven by fear and inexperience. And again, that's where the relentless empathy and the kindness can help because people are frightened they're going to say the wrong thing or seem you know seem somehow uh, not you know
0: unacceptable, and that's not helpful either. Right. Lauren's just given me another question, and it's a very long one. I might just read this one to you. It says, um, when we conduct discovery, we reveal skills and talents of our clients, but often the parents say, no, my child or family member is not capable of that. How would you deal with the the parents or the family members and their overprotectiveness around around these things?
1: Oh, I mean... It's 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 not a one-size-fits-all, is it? But I suppose... No, it's not. I ...hear that question. I think, again, what I said before, a lot of that feeling will be driven by actual experiences that and feelings and very powerful emotions that the family members have had. It won't have come from nowhere. It won't be... Um, it's unlikely to be ill-intentioned. Uh, sometimes I think that overprotectiveness, you know, can veer into just not allowing somebody their human adult rights, and I, I don't think you can compromise on that. I mean, obviously, the person and their right to be the adult they want to be is is, is the thing that uh, that is the most important. Uh, but given, given how people's lives are, working in alliance with somebody from a position of empathy, in my experience, is more productive than... Uh, becoming very um become confrontational about it so what so why would a family member not be able to see or feel confident in a person's capacities well I think a lot of parents of any children (laughs) (laughs) underestimate their children and want to keep them safe Oh, absolutely and it's when our children become teenagers and say excuse me I'm going anyway you know we have to get over ourselves don't we and we all know that with a learning disability, that process is altered often. Yeah, but it yes, does, I, it's not profoundly different, but it is
0: altered. Absolutely, and and I know I had that experience of one of my daughters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think what's really interesting, and one of the things we, we tend to forget about when we're working with families, is that often families come from a position where, where they've been promised so much over the years, yeah. they've been yeah. let down continuously by the system, that, mm. that, that the starting point is well, you're gonna found me, so yeah. why should I start?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's back to the issue of trust, isn't it, Peter, which we've sort of looped back to. That, you know, if if somebody doesn't trust you, that's probably because of past experience. It doesn't make you wrong and you untrustworthy. Uh, but it means that that's probably a starting point for, for every exchange now. And, um, you know, I, I'm currently in a very different situation engaged in trying to support, trying to access good care for my elderly parents. And I tell you, it's given me a massive insight into what a lot of the families I've worked with professionally are facing. You know, it's it's really hard. And um And it's you know it helps me in my work, but it's it's I'm not making it up. You know the kind of the difficulties I experience, I haven't imagined them. No. Um, So I think it's really again taking time to talk to families about where those feelings might come from, and doing that helps the family own the feelings as their own. Because what you really want to do is help them manage. Their own feelings so they don't get in the way of the extraordinary progress their son or daughter is going to be able to make because their son or daughter needs to be free to be their own selves, just as we all do when we individuate from our family members. But that, as I say, that process is complicated by the lived experiences of learning disability. So I think we need to work with an understanding of those.
0: I, it, it almost suggests that the starting point is almost like a very mild form of family therapy before you can actually start to work with the individual.
1: Uh, well, I suppose, yes, In as I understand family therapy to be, you know, an approach where everybody everybody's perspective is valued and um, heard uh, and people see how the relationships between each other affect what's going on in the family. I do still, in my heart, have a lot of, uh, I really think people should have their own therapy. You know, I, I think family therapy is, is it's really helpful. And I think the principles of it can be extremely useful. But we shouldn't think, there's a risk of saying, well, this person can't be in a room being their own self saying what the hell they like to their own therapist um, because that's something we want for ourselves I don't actually want my mum and dad in a room when I have therapy or my partner or my children you know I'm I'm quite enjoying just being with my therapist and we shouldn't (laughs) and knowing my therapist won't tell what I say to the bank manager and my partner and all the rest of it so we have to hold on to that but yes I think family therapy thinking is very helpful.
0: Yeah, look, and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, all the years of therapy, I heard there's no, I don't well, I have to know, I've seen my therapist, exactly. <laughs> let, let alone the person who's, who's trying to help me in, in employment or in the support setting yeah. I'm in. So it, 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 and it, I
1: suppose it, just to add to that, I think that the risk of it becoming a family project is that the... Um, the very particular disadvantaged perspective of the person with a learning disability might get overlooked, you know, too many compromises. I think sometimes there's some redressing to be done, you know, they right. may not have been fully experienced as a, as a potentially independent adult in the world within that family. So they may right. need that more.
0: We've just introduced um, psychosocial recovery uh, counselling, coaching into Australia, into the NDIS system, so families or individuals now have access to that. What's your experience with that type of service?
1: Um, Just tell me a bit more what you mean by psychosocial.
0: Well, basically it's a... I mean, I when I look at it, I think, well, okay, this is just normal counselling, but they're using it as a methodology to allow uh-huh. someone to have counselling or almost, it's almost like rehabilitation counselling rather than what we would consider to be counselling. Although, to be honest, having worked in rehab counselling and normal counselling settings, I never understood the difference, but uh-huh. we put another label on it and separated it from counselling. So I'm just yeah. wondering, when you look at these things, um, recovery... Kind of sounds like well, from an illness or something, as opposed to general counseling, which is for for many of us just part of our normal lifetime journey. Yes,
1: yes. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm still not fully sure I understand the um,
0: the context, the
1: the, the terminology, (laughs) but I suppose maybe what, um, I I wouldn't say that, um, well, I don't know. you wouldn't necessarily need counseling just because you had a learning disability you know yeah. you need counseling if you've run into run into a, a, a barrier to you sort of walking walking well on the path of your life something's okay. in the way
0: we might leave that one side do we get a bit i get that a bit clearer in my head as well okay okay <laughs> so If you had a crystal ball and we're thinking okay where are we going with with the sort of services that people with learning disabilities need okay what are you thinking what are you seeing in the future
1: uh well definitely work you know opportunities to be valued citizens i mean we have been banging on about this for a very long time but you know there's enough out there now about schemes that really work I, i i don't think there's any excuse for not doing it more you know, it's mainly in this country anyway, an economic You know, an economic thing. But you know, there, are, there's been a lot of talk over many decades about finding meaning, people with learning disabilities having meaningful work lives and proper employment, and it can be done, and it does get done, and everybody should learn from the ones that have worked well, and particularly by talking to people with learning disabilities themselves. So, I would want to see that grow, and I think that if it doesn't, very often it'll be because um, as well as sort of historic the de- devaluation and dehumanisation, which I don't think ever goes away, but I think economic difficulties do make a difference too. So in terms of the dehumanisation and um, objectification and othering, I personally feel that, um, you know, there's a long way to go for society, but uh, things like the Black Lives Matter movement and a general acceptance of equality of humanity, which I like to feel... Uh, when you see progress in other areas to do with the LGBTQ community as well. You know, I'm hoping there's a generation of people coming up there who who recognise the equality of human beings. and um, People with learning disabilities, some of the things that happen to them are because that isn't there. A lot of things are, and we can't get past that. And that well, is always a driver in my work too. So I hope that people with learning disabilities will benefit from changes that are occurring there. I hope they are occurring I think economics and political commitment is a massive, massive factor. You have to keep fighting and arguing and demanding and learning from best practice. not really crystal ball, Peter. (laughs) No,
0: no. I mean, uh, my mentor often says to me that I've been doing this for 60 years and I'm still fighting the same battle. Um, (laughs) And sometimes I I feel the same way. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) but I'm not – I think that's right. I mean – Probably the, the the difficulties don't change, but you continue to work with a commitment to changing them as best you can in your own in your own work sphere. Um, and it's not a question of proselytizing, but it's a question of speaking up whenever you can. And um, I I think people who are employed now to work with people with learning disabilities there's a different values base to that. I think economics gets in the way, low wages, poor job conditions, poor employment. So those things really matter uh, but also there's a there's a statement of value that is different from 30 years ago and I
0: right. hope that
1: continues um, yeah but I suppose I think keeping I mean I'm a bit old now I've been doing it a long time <laughs> I do so I can't be I'm not all full of this I'm still full of energy I just think keeping hope alive is, at, is something that's a political act in itself and that's something I think it's very important to do uh, if you can do that on a micro scale, then that's really what matters. And then
0: one, one person at a time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly that.
0: This has been excellent. We've gone nearly an hour. Um, right, so, gosh. So th- this has been fascinating. Um, any final words?
1: Um, well, it's really good to hear that these changes are happening in Australia. I'm not very familiar with the learning disabilities, you know, scene in Australia, but anything like this and the idea that people with learn disabilities will a have jobs and b be able to access you know support of an emotionally informed nature in their jobs is fantastic news and I just wish you really you know huge huge good for it I really hope it goes well and why wouldn't you why wouldn't you do this I suppose I think well you know? exactly There's right no case to be made for not making workplace counselling available to people with learning disabilities our job to make it um, usable at the point of delivery. That, that, that's our job.
0: Well, to make it a normal part of the employment process. Exactly, it's just, exactly. It's as simple as that. And to yeah. say it's
1: not possible is an equality issue in my in my book. And then I completely understand that people might feel unsure or are uh, but generally my experience of that people are much better equipped than they think they are.
0: And Absolutely. And it's
1: a of unlocking that.
0: Well, this has been brilliant. I really want to thank you for your time. Wow, well, it's um, been
1: fascinating. Thank you for inviting me.
0: It, no, absolutely. And I, and I think I think we'll have more conversations over the, over the next few years.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Keep in touch.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. Well, I really appreciate you. it. Good and, luck to everybody. <laughs> and you have a lovely day. Thanks, Samson.
1: All right, bye. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: And that ends um, our podcast. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have questions, by all means, email me and I can pass them on to Tamsin. Thank you, everyone.